Hello, and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater, Episode 3. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about Silent Hill, the 2006 film directed by Christoph Gans. Um, and this episode is titled, Something Silent, This Way Comes. Mm-hmm. Alright, so uh, I am joined, I'm your host Tim, and I'm joined, of course, as always, by... Catherine. Sister. <laughs> That's right, and we are here to talk about... Um, one of our favorite films, if I can be honest, I, I think we can come right out mm-hmm. and say it, that we both enjoy this movie quite a bit, but probably because of its connections to uh, also a very favorite film franchise. And so Silent Hill is a video game adaptation. Uh, many video game adaptations fall into the category of film that we're interested in discussing on this podcast because many of them sort of miss the mark in a few key ways. And so Silent Hill is going to be our, our first one of those to discuss. And I think it's going to provide us with uh, quite a bit to talk about. Before we get into that, um, what have you been watching? What's what's on your plate I have, these days? I have been watching and reading a lot about screenwriting because I'm going to try and turn my book into a screenplay instead. So I'm not very watching nice. very much yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to read scripts as opposed to just watching them so that I can get a better... Better perspective. Very nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think that um, tons of good resources out there. Uh, I know we've shared a few back and forth. One screenplay, if you can get a hold of it. If you don't, I think I've got a copy floating around somewhere. Uh, Kerry Fukunaga's screenplay for uh, the original It Part One, uh, before it was adapted by Andy Machete and then you know turned into the the film that you know did very very well. Um, is is just a barn burner of a script. Like it is a fantastically designed script from start to finish, and um, I think that uh, reading it is a really good you know lesson in screenplay design. Just clean, really good. So uh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Really good to hear. I'm excited. I'm I'm nervous because I it just screenwriting. I did it you know for my um, mass media studies that you know you have to do. But I didn't really stick with it, so I'm not not very experienced. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, well, I haven't been watching. Uh, haven't been watching too much, uh, but we did this weekend. I don't know why, but um, just kind of fired up Hulu. Was looking around at stuff and ended up uh, sort of power slamming a bunch of wings. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what it was. Uh, maybe it's Thomas Hayden Church's, you know, sultry baritone. Maybe it's Tim Daly's uh, gorgeous feathered hair. Uh, not exactly sure what. Uh, Those were the wings. Was, was the that hair. was the wings. Yeah, <laughs> the, the show that was coyly and aptly named. It's not really about flying. It's just about feathered hair. Mm. And uh, really enjoying it. We had just sort of worked our way through the first season a while back, just sort of here and there, you know, before we went to bed or something. And um, Yesterday, we, we did a bunch of work outside and had a bunch of other things going on. I got home and just kind of watched forever. And I'm reminded of just what a, a pretty decent show it is. Uh, there's a, Some of the jokes don't land anymore, obviously. I mean, we're talking like 1990, 1991 here. So very, very different landscape of sitcom. But some surprisingly progressive stuff. I had completely forgotten that uh, one of the main characters on the show, Roy, Roy Biggins, they introduced in the second season that he has a son who 
plays football and he's very proud of him, but then the son comes out as gay over the course of the episode. And of course, you know, it's played for laughs, which is insensitive and, and a little bit gross, but really, you know, most of the characters are super supportive and they encourage the kid to, you know, be honest and, and tell the people around him so that they can understand him. And uh, it was just a surprisingly adept handling of it, given the time frame, hmm. uh, especially for a, a, you know, basically what amounted to like a primetime sitcom. But, you know, a lot of the creative team, there's the people that came from Cheers, people going to do Frasier, which in its own way had a lot of progressive qualities as well. And, you know, it was just really, it was really good. And then finally, we, we got into season three, just the first couple episodes. And they finally brought uh, uh, Tony Shalhoub in. Oh, yeah. Uh, Antonio. And man, he's just a scene stealer. Oh, my gosh. They actually, I'd forgotten, they introduced him halfway through season two as a maitre d' at an Italian restaurant on the island. And he just absolutely steals that episode. Like Tony Shalhoub, the moment he he appears on screen, it is his episode. He takes it over, uh, playing this like you know, over the top Italian maitre d' character. But he's fantastic, and you can tell that it was one of those things the producers are like, "This guy is super good, super good. We've got to get him on the show full time." And so they bring him in and they change him. They briefly reference his time in in, in the restaurant industry, but now. By the time he comes back to it, he's a, a taxi cab driver who's ferrying people around the island. Uh, but it was just, it was that's, really fun. That's kind, really, kind the feathered thing. hair and that character are really the two things I remember about the show. And I was very small when that was on the air. Yeah, no, it was early, um, you know, what an early sitcom that I remember as well. Uh, I guess it was just the desolation of the TV landscape at the time, you know, the lack of choice. But I, you know, I watched a ton of Cheers and, and you know, all of those. those I'm more shows, of a Frasier fan. Like, <laughs> I'm hardcore yeah, Frasier. Sure. I could, yeah, I no, could Frasier's binge great. watch Frasier anytime. I love that show. I found out, I kept seeing this producer name come up in the Wings credits uh, for Roz Doyle. And she was a producer on the show. And I was like, Roz Doyle? Isn't that... The producer character from Frasier and I found out that it they named that character in Frasier after her <laughs> because she she passed away from breast cancer and that was their way of honoring that producer that they'd worked with for so many years on Wings they when they made Frasier they just gave her her name yeah. and so now she kind of lives on which I thought was really cool but anyway um so that's kind of what I've been watching a few movies here and there just stuff that I've been uh you know had in the hopper that I've been interested in checking out but nothing really worth mentioning at this point so um, all right. Well, cool. Um, certainly excited to, you know, look at your screenplay and, and see what you come up with there. I'm excited about that. Uh, I too have a writing project that I'm getting ready to embark on. I think I've just about got all the pieces figured out. So, uh, maybe throwing that your way as well, but cool. all right, well, let's get into Silent Hill. So first up, let's discuss the, the failure of the film, and then we're going to need to talk about the series itself. Because this is a film that, unfortunately, if you have never seen Silent Hill, there are going to be some pretty impenetrable components of this movie. And I think that might have been one of the reasons why it failed. Not necessarily that you have to have seen Silent Hill, but there are going to be things that happen and progressions it's, in the story that It's not are a very accessible film. Whereas, like, no. my other favorite video game movie, Mortal Kombat, not going to lie, was accessible. very accessible. It has a story that can be explained by Christopher Lambert in about in a, 10 seconds in a scene. Yeah, exactly. You know, get on the boat, a bunch of, a handful of people on a leaky boat are going to save the world. She says it in the movie and like mm -hmm. that's literally what happens. 
So <laughs> Silent Hill, on the other hand, very you, complicated. Oh, like that's a world, that's a universe that you you mm-hmm. enter, and the long history of the games, because uh, the fourth one, like you you'd said that earlier, the fourth one was out. Uh, that came out in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, where, when did Origins come out? Seven, two thousand seven. It was so right this after was this. this was like right between those two games, which Origins was a fantastic game too. It is, and it's the first game that really adopts the visual language of the film in the video game because the film makes some significant choices about sort of what happens to Silent Hill when things change and shift and and i thought that origins did a good job of trying to bridge the the two right of sort of using the visual language of the movie to tell its story and communicate its ideas but still kind of hold on to some of the things that we knew from the past as well and so that really is the the shift because silent hill 4 was also the last one to be made exclusively by a japanese mm-hmm. team um, and then um, konami shifted development of the silent hill series primarily to Eastern European and, and Western developers. So uh, it was a big shift in the series as well. Um, but Silent Hill, like, it defines horror games for me, like survival horror games. For a lot of people, that's Resident Evil. For me, it's just Silent Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and the focus is the town of Silent Hill. Uh, right, Silent is, Hill is an entity instead of a set of characters. Yeah, right. it's and it is very much personified. Like, Silent Hill is not just a place it is a place that feels very much alive and very kind of shifting and changing because in every game it's a little bit different um the mm-hmm. town that you visit as a player character is just not the same as the previous one um but it's supposed to be a resort town somewhere in um the eastern united states yeah, it's never identified specifically, but the landscape would say sort of, you know, southern Pennsylvania, maybe, Virginia. And one that was know, the inspiration was a, a town named Centralia um, in Pennsylvania that is abandoned mm-hmm. because of coal fires. Which that comes right, into play was, hugely in the movie. Yeah, the, f- the film really bounces off of that. Um, but that was an inspiration for the game. That was kind of where they got at least some of the ideas Um for the abandoned town landscape. Um, exactly. But it's it's, right, really, so it's hard to talk about Silent Hill because <laughs> it's big. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get into that here in a sec. So let's let's talk about the film first and sort of what happened. Uh, so again, the film's directed by Christoph Gans. It is um, written by Roger Avery, who has been in Sucks. Hollywood for a while. <laughs> he's, he's not great, uh, but he... He basically came into prominence because he co-wrote Pulp Fiction, which, of course, was a huge, huge film. Um, and so he's been around for a while, and, and he got the script duties on this one, although I think that Christoph Gans had a lot of input as well. But ultimately, it's it's credited to Avery. So in terms of, of our critical reception, we've got the Rotten Tomato score here, and it's a 31% critic score, 63% audience score. So a pretty wide gulf there between critics and audiences. But critics did not particularly like this film for a bunch of different reasons we'll get into in a sec. Uh, so some some reviews that I found, uh, some, some takes, some hot takes, if you will. We've got Elizabeth Weitzman from the New York Daily News. Christoph Gans' convoluted, overlong adaptation of the video game Silent Hill is the worst kind of horror movie trash that takes itself seriously. Ouch. Um, 
Yeah. So, and this was a pretty common refrain was that the movie was overlong. Number one, which it it, it pushes two hours. Which well, nobody a, would say that now in the <laughs> no. age of two and a half hour everything. Definitely not. But at the time, that was a long horror movie, right? Most horror movies still try and hit that 100 minute mark because it's there's a certain amount that a human being can take before you need respite. <laughs> there's a certain know, amount like, of pain before you have to look away. Exactly. So, so there is definitely that component to it. Um, but I'll go ahead and, and introduce one idea here: is is that I don't think Silent Hill is a horror film, much like the Silent Hill games are not horror games. They are psychological thrillers that have horror elements to reinforce ideas. Um, and so I think there's a sort of fundamental misunderstanding, but I mean, we've got marketing, we've got all of these different forces that are saying this is the horror movie of the summer. Whatever. And they so, did include some extremely horrific things. Very much. So. The <laughs> ending of this film is difficult to watch. It is hard to watch. It is, it is brutal um, at a certain point. And, you know, so it is horrific. I don't want to minimize that. But so that's uh, New York Daily News. Uh, we've got Peter Howell from the Toronto Star. This one is dumber than a bag of coffin nails, despite the directing hand of Christoph Gans. And I picked this one because this was also pretty common. Most people said that the film was problematic, but Gans's directing, like his visuals, his actual style, was pretty universally praised. There were not a lot of people that felt that he had done a bad job as a director. They just felt he got saddled with a story that was going to be difficult to tell no matter what. And I don't know if I agree because I think he had a lot of hand in it. Well, he but was, I do certainly understand. He was very know, excited to from. make the movie. He played the games. Oh, yeah. He's a huge fan. Huge fan. Uh, and, and said as much during all of the, you know, the development and the lead up to the movie. Like he, he was thrilled to have the ability to sort of play in this universe. So I, I don't want to, you know, sort of take all the hands off and say that Gans was innocent here, but I think most people were pretty happy accepting that Gans is a pretty fantastic director. Uh, okay, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian. Maybe it's the kudos acquired by screenwriter Roger Avery and his association with Quentin Tarantino that has allowed him to write this unbelievably boring <laughs> horror thriller. So Bradshaw just straight called out the <laughs> fact that Roger Avery probably had no business writing this movie. And, and I, I think... You know, a lot of people felt the same way. It's like, how exactly did he get brought into this? Because apart from that Pulp Fiction success, he's not done uh, a tremendous amount of work. Hey, now, he did Beowulf after this. That's true. Wasn't that a wonderful adaptation? It's it's good. Beowulf's a tough one to to adapt. A lot of people try. We couldn't even do an episode of this podcast about that movie. I can't find (laughs) anything redeemable. It would be tough, for sure. There are certainly... Uh, I would definitely like to do The 13th Warrior at some point, because that was a huge failure. But I think it's actually a pretty fantastic film. So we might do that one. That. Yeah, it's it's solid. You know, it's a very different take on the Beowulf mythos, but still pretty fun. All right. And then uh, Scott Tobias from the AV Club, a, a site that I read quite a bit. Uh, the film's peculiar rhythms, action, exposition, action, exposition, betray its video game roots... But audiences unfamiliar with the Sion Hill series can be forgiven for thinking that the game asks players to run from place to place, shouting a little girl's name at the top of their lungs. So Tobias here, I think, was one of the few reviews that I read that actually did obviously have some experience with the game series. Because this is something that we see in the game that is primarily the activity of the first game specifically. It's being led from (laughs) place to place, you know, yelling the name of the child that you're looking for. And Have so, you um, seen a little girl? 
And so, um, you know, Tobias kind of brings that up, and I, I think that he's right. You know, there there are some issues with how characters move from place to place in this movie. Um, it's a bit arbitrary. It doesn't always make sense. The characters' goals aren't necessarily always clear, and, and we'll certainly get to that. But, uh, again, part of that is its adaptation and the material that it's bringing into it, and also that to appease fans. And I think that Gans had the specific desire to appease Silent Hill fans with this movie. He wanted to provide them with an experience that they would both recognize, but also be surprised by in some ways. I think in wanting to get those things into the film, sure, yeah, he made some choices to get characters where he wanted them to be rather than maybe letting the story naturally take them there, which I think is also uh, an interesting thing and and one we'll, we'll definitely discuss. Uh, And then the last one uh, from The Village Voice, Bill Gallo. Stuffed with cheap effects and devoid of tension, this French-Japanese-U.S. co-production contributes exactly zilch to the rich film history of those three nations. The most horror-crazed teen may be hard-pressed to find any authentic thrills here. Um, And I I brought this one up because I think it also... This this film, for me, and something that I I hope we, we talk about a bit more over the course of our discussion represents the pinnacle of remix culture and what remix culture is and was at this time in the Mm. development of of creative things. Because what we have, and as we talk about Silent Hill, the game franchise, this will become clear, we have a bunch of Japanese game developers, Team Silent, influenced by movies like Jacob's Ladder, shows like Twin Peaks, horror films from... America, also horror films from Japan, you know, these iconic sort of horror images that we know from Japan now uh, from things like Rings and and Jew on the Grudge and all these. So we've got some developers who are taking all of these varied influences and horrific elements that they love and then remixing them into this thing that's very different and very original. And then we have another director coming in and then remixing those elements using his own cultural interpretations right and his own ideas and then we get sort of remix on top of remix and i think that could be part of the reason why this film has a hard time connecting with some people it's because without some of those references like there's some things that just aren't going to make sense it's very pastiche in its approach to even just horror films because there are so many parts of the movie that feel traditional horror that feel very mm-hmm. like 1970s you know, supernatural horror even like the look of the film sometimes will will pull out some of those those like you said references and yet it's also part of this video game universe that was crafted from not just from Japanese culture but like you said American culture but the the term for me it feels like a pastiche like much more so than even the games themselves. The games still feel very referential, um, but almost tongue in cheek about it. Um, sure, it wears them all on its sleeve. Yeah, you know, street names. It's like and stuff you know, like you that. see what we did there. Um, because the the games have to also maintain some lightheartedness. I think that's why they re- they show their references a little bit more because the games are so dark. Um, if they weren't lighthearted about something, it would be kind of scary. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then this this movie further like takes those references and then twists them and adds more. And you almost don't know 
what the the original works are that are being referenced anymore. I will say that that's maybe a problem of the film. Yeah, and that, I guess that's kind of what I was getting at too, is that the the references, the ideas that seeded Silent Hill as a franchise, they get kind of reinterpreted again here, and they get further distanced from the things that sort of brought them to bear, right? Like the patient demon that we see uh, in the initial... Uh, you know, Lori Holden, she she fights one. That patient demon is a is a pretty direct reference to a character in, in Jacob's Ladder or a character that one of the characters sees. And, you know, sort of modified to fit its own purposes, you know, or, or the, the game's purposes, but, you know, it's supposed to represent this sort of bound psychological terror. And in this movie, you know, there's, there's no connecting tissue back yeah. to that original idea. It's and it just, just appears to be its own thing. It's just there because a fan is going to see it and be like, it's the patient demon. But you don't right, once I consider, like, why is it on a hillside outside next exactly. to a highway? Like, what is it doing there? Um, and a lot of, uh, I guess one thing we can talk about when we get there, too, is that a lot of, you know, hardcore Silent Hill fans, which I would put myself in that category, but maybe not to this point, were angry that we had images and imagery from Silent Hill 2 in what is ostensibly a, a sort of loose retelling of Silent Hill 1 because the way that the Silent Hill universe is set up, all of those things exist because of the main character of yeah. Silent Hill 2 bringing them with him. And, you know, we can talk about that and get to that. But, you know, there's there's some issues there too. But again, to somebody just walking into this movie fresh in the summer of 2006, sitting down to watch a horror film, none of that stuff's going to hit. None I, of that's going to register. I was young enough at the time that I was just excited for representation. I was like, this thing that I love is going to be represented in mainstream media, and it won't be made fun of. Because 2006, games still didn't command quite as much respect as they do now. You know, we didn't have our our, our Neil Druckmann's <laughs> commanding all yeah, this respect no, as no, game developers. No, Last of Us, no, no um, Uncharted, you know. So it it felt good that the movie was getting so much press and it was getting so much attention that I was willing to overlook, you know, what is that patient demon doing there? What is right. going on? Why are they using music from Silent Hill 2? Because I didn't, I didn't even mind that it was a retelling of Silent Hill 1. I was actually kind of glad because I felt like that one had a stronger film version in it i felt like that would be mm -hmm. a make a better film than maybe the second game yeah um, um i guess let's let's go ahead and get into it then let's let's talk about silent hills as a, a video game franchise so um the original silent hill comes out what is that um, 1998 fall of fall of 98 no 99 um, 99. 99 yeah so i remember interacting with that about a year earlier uh, i had just started college and i was commuting and so I would be down on campus in between classes, have several hours to kill, and I fairly regularly would go to our local Toys R Us, and I would play the demo stations. Um, you know, I, had, I was an avid video gamer. You well called before me that after time. This. Yeah, and <laughs> and so I'd gone down. They had a, a PlayStation, which the PlayStation had been out for a little bit at that point, a couple of years, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't bought one and was uh, playing some other stuff and getting into PC gaming, that kind of thing, and. Uh, I went down and they had the demo station set up and there was this game in there. And I, at, at the time, I, it didn't even have a, a title screen. So I didn't even know its name. And I think at the end, it came up and said, you know, Silent Hill coming such and such time. So this would have been spring of 98. 
and uh, it was the school in Silent Hill, and mm-hmm. you only got to play a small chunk of it. It had a character, or a, a you know, there were these uh, ghost babies in it. That weren't, <laughs> in the, they weren't even in the final game. They were only in the demo. They took them out. And uh, I remember playing it, and it, even standing in a brightly lit Toys R Us, you know, on a demo station that had you know grubby, you know, handprints all over it. Uh, it was just an intensely terrifying experience. You know, the music was intense and, and sort of industrial in its quality. And so that was my first taste of Silent Hill. I had, I had never uh, really played anything like that before. Um, maybe Alone in the Dark on 3DO. I think I'd rented a 3DO and played a, the Alone uh-huh. in the Dark game. Gross. <laughs> uh, at one point. And it was terrible. Like, it was, you know, I, I understand how foundational that game is to, you know, the development of what we would now call survival horror as a game um, genre. But... I, I got nothing out of that. Like, it was just a waste of time. But this was truly shocking. Like, this was an experience where I was like, wow, that was incredible. So uh, years later, you know, I, I eventually did get a, a PS1 and, and you know, played through Silent Hill 1 and enjoyed it. And But it wasn't really until Silent Hill 2 that, you know, I took over. So what was your sort of first experience with with Silent Hill that you can remember? Well... I'll just preface this for anyone listening who doesn't know this about me. My nickname is the elephant because I never forget anything and I'm large. Um, but I just, I don't forget anything. And I specifically remember you went to Toys R Us and you played that demo and you called me on the landline telephone. Uh, Cause that's how we did things back then. And you said you ha- we're going to have to play this game. We got to get a PlayStation somehow. I don't know how we're going to get a place here. I don't have any money. I was like, I won't, I I got a Nintendo 64. I thought, I thought I was Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And we were both kind of cursing that we both picked the 64. Um, and our mom, uh, had to get a part-time job because, uh, my dad retired and there was a gap in his income, whatever. doesn't matter. She had to get a Mm part-time job and she picked a video store that had just opened up. And they rented systems. And right. your first experience playing Silent Hill was also my first experience because we rented one and brought it to my house. And we played an entire night, got all the way to the end of the game. And you were like, I got to go home. I gotta, we got to sleep at some <laughs> point. Yeah. But we didn't have a memory card. So I had to just right. like, rent <laughs> I had yeah. to wait until we could scrape together cash for a memory card and save the game. Um, and then after, after I played it, that was my quest to get a PlayStation. I just wanted to play it again. Uh, right. I, I mean, Silent Hill 2 was, was groundbreaking, but we played that one again. We were together. We played... Mm-hmm. Four. It was pretty much every, everyone up until 4, because uh, 4 was kind of the end of an era for Silent Hill, and the ones after that have been, I've enjoyed them, you know, I don't hate them like some of the people in the fandom do, but it's it's been a, a it was a rocky several years for the franchise before Konami basically just bit the bullet and, and doesn't exist anymore, so the... The, you know whether or not Silent Hill as an entity will ever happen again is is definitely still up in the air. Even though there are obviously people in the industry who would love to see another one, so um, hopefully we'll get one because I would certainly love it. I mean, but so the you know good. Well, the the first and second games, and and I guess even the third one. The third one was the one that we imported from Japan, if I recall correctly. 
that was four. Was that four? That was four. I knew we imported yeah. one of them. <laughs> yeah, I modded a PlayStation Two and imported four because it came out in Japan. It was it was almost it was over a year before it was scheduled to come over here, and the Japanese version had a full English translation on it, um, English voices and everything. The game was done. They just did not bring it here for it, maybe it wasn't a year, it was like eight months or something. And I was like, it was too long. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll modify a PlayStation and we'll just you know order one from a Japanese gaming site. So, um, but yeah, I do remember playing that. I was we were, that was when we were living in our apartment, and you came and you came down, and and again we kind of just powered through it in a single night. Um, even though four is a difficult game to power That's through, man, really that game is rough. Um, so let's talk about the franchise from a, a high level, right? So Silent Hill 1 it tells a very simple story um, at its core, right? It gets more complicated as it goes. But ultimately, a guy is traveling, presumably on a vacation. You know, we don't mm-hmm. really know, I guess. He is um, taking her on a vacation. Uh, taking her on a vacation. She asks to go to Silent Hill specifically. Right. So they're going to this resort town of Silent Hill, as they're approaching the town, uh, there's a woman standing in the middle of the road, which is at this point a very classic horror trope, again, drawn from um, you know, a, a variety of horror films from the 70s and 80s. And uh, he swerves in his Jeep, misses the girl, but uh, gets knocked out, and when he wakes up, his daughter is gone. He wanders his way into town, calling her name, searching for her. The entire town is covered in this dense, thick fog. He sees somebody moving, um, sort of in the fog, follows them, and then gets pulled into this nightmare world. And so he travels through the town, which you know has names, uh, street names for famous horror authors like Richard Bachman, and ultimately is trying to get his daughter back, right? That is his driving goal. Find my daughter, get my daughter safe. And the more time he spends in the town, the more he realizes that something is wrong, right? And maybe his daughter is involved. And so the, the story flares out, and there is a cult, a group of people who are trying to resurrect an ancient demon, and uh, this girl that he thought was his uh, daughter, adopted daughter, is actually tied into this story, and she is, is a part of this, and, uh, and, and he gets kind of sucked into it and tries to stop it and save his daughter. So it's a pretty simple story, a pretty straightforward movement. You know, it's, it's one of those, it's from a time period in gaming where you needed just the barest motivation to sort of propel your character forward, you know, and the princess is of, in another castle kind of Most thing. of what I know about the game comes from, like, separate media, like comic books and, you know, stuff that was inside the game manual <laughs> like crap like that the, yeah, the a game lot of the games yeah it's pretty didn't even it's give you that pretty story. dense mm-hmm. yeah we get introduced to a few different characters there's a, a strange woman running around town named dahlia gillespie who talks about having a daughter who was um killed in the past at some point i guess there's a go to a hospital at one point and there's a doctor there who's very suspicious as well as a nurse who's kind of mysterious find out he's involved with this cult and he sort of manufactures a drug for them. So there's all of these weird elements, right? Again, you can feel the sort of mashing together of a bunch of different things that the development team was interested in, right? There's a little bit of Twin Peaks. Um, There is a little bit of uh, Jacob's Ladder, right? With the sort of mixed narrative. Um, Obviously, one of the things that gets seeded right away is, you know, did Harry die in the crash? And this is all in his imagination, and he never actually woke up. I I guess that's even one of the possible endings that you can unlock. Yes, that's the bad ending. 
Yeah, the bad ending is that he he died in the crash, and this is all just happening in his mind as he dies, which is straight out of Jacob's Ladder, uh, the uh, film from the 1990s starring Tim Robbins, where you know he is living this life, and then the last sort of shot of the film is him back in Vietnam, laying on an operating table, and he dies, right? And so this whole thing that you've been watching and experiencing was just his death throes. And so they play with that a little bit. Again, that's the bad ending of the game, but still... Um, and so there's, there's a lot of really cool elements in it. Like it's, it's, it's really atmospheric, crazy atmospheric, um, limited by controls to a certain extent, but they do some cool stuff with that even, you know, so, um, that becomes, I guess what we could call the mainline Silent Hill story, right? Of Silent Hill, the town, the cult that lives within it, and this, idea of a, a girl named Alessa Gillespie who has telekinetic powers. She's special. <clears throat> and uh, Alessa has the ability to sort of bring people into the town and, and they can either help her or not help her or what have you. So that's kind of like your mainline Silent Hill story, which is pretty much the focus of Silent Hills 1 and 3. But really for me, and I, I don't know if you feel this way, Silent Hill 2 is... is this is the best game ever. It's the pinnacle. Like, it is literally, if, if you're going to line up the top video games ever manufactured up to this point in history, this this is going to be on that list. I have a homemade um, shadow box hung on the wall next to me with tributes to that game. Like, specifically yeah. Silent Hill 2, because I love it so much. It's it's so good. So Silent Hill 2 took a very different direction, right? It was, it was developed by the same team, but different members of that team. And... Um, they really took advantage. It came out a few years into the PlayStation 2's life. It was not a launch title. It did not come out immediately. It was, it was after the hardware had kind of been mined for some of its power a little bit. And so Silent Hill 2 comes out, and it establishes another type of Silent Hill game, which is focused on the town. Not the, the story of the cult or, or the girl or anything like that, but really just on what this place can do and how if you get sort of sucked into it and pulled into its world that the town can sort of have an effect on you, right? And so it establishes a kind of anthology concept, right? That you could tell dozens of different stories in the Silent Hill universe by just having different people come to Silent Hill and have experiences there. And so Silent Hill 2 is a very different story. It's much more melancholy. Um, it doesn't start off big. Basically, uh, the main character is a guy named James Sunderland who has been drawn to Silent Hill by a mysterious letter received from his dead wife who uh, requests his presence in their special place in Silent Hill. So he travels to the town. He comes into the town. The town is deserted. There's no one there. There's a heavy fog, right? So all of those same elements from the first one. But it's a very different Silent Hill than the one that uh, you know Harry, the main character of the first game, endured. Uh, and instead it is sort of tailored to James's experience, right? What he's been going through. So much so that other characters you meet who seem to be in the town are not experiencing the same things that you are. No, exactly. Uh, you're very quickly introduced to a character named Angela who knows that something's wrong in the town. She's seen some things, but yet her experience and reaction to those is very different from James. Uh, I think the character uh, Anna in this film is kind of loosely based on Angela. They're trying to mine that same well yeah not, they're both not, idiots not well yeah like they're they're bad characters uh for the most part but you know sort of playing on the same idea 
Um, but so James's experience is very different. And over the course of the game, and I guess spoilers for a 20-year-old Silent Hill game. If you sorry. haven't played it, that's your problem. <laughs> um, ultimately, what we find out is that James Sunderland's wife is... He initially says mm. she's been dead for years, um, but she's only been dead for a few months. Possibly. And he's been... Possibly, maybe less. And he's been slowly going insane because he is the one who murdered her, right? He smothered her. She had a lot of illness. <laughs> and, you know, there's tons of ambiguity, which is one of the things that I think works against this movie is that the Silent Hill games, all of them, one of the common threads in their storytelling is that it is incredibly ambiguous and open to interpretation. A lot As... of people have done very good interpretations of it that make a ton of sense. Oh, yeah. But even still there's a lot of room for you to inject, well, maybe this could be happening. And the creators will not clarify anything. Team Silent's no. very active on social media and like they'll talk to fans um, and they have their own interpretations, but they're always very careful to say like, this is just what I think. It's not actually what the game is about. I don't know. <laughs> right. And, and you can tell that it's a, you know, it was a group of people all kind of bringing their ideas together and trying to, create something that, that appealed to all of them, right? You know, video game development is not, even though we may have developers who try to make it sound like it's this super focused experience, we had this vision and we executed. That's not how video game development works. Not really how anything works. But video games, there are too many hands in those pots to say that, oh, this is one guy's vision. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Well, and I, I think another important aspect of the ambiguity of, of the Silent Hill games and why the Silent Hill games changed so much as they got older that proposed such a problem for the film is that Eastern, I hate using that term, Eastern versus Western, but Eastern mm -hmm. developers and filmmakers are fine with ambiguity in film and fine right. with ambiguity in games. Like, you don't have to have all the answers. We just hope mm -hmm. you like the ride. Yeah. And Western developers, Western filmmakers are like, we've got to have a reason for this. There has to be a backstory. We need, we need some kind of flashback. We need a character to explain this. Um, Kevin Smith, in one of the things where Kevin Smith never shuts the fuck up, uh, he called... There are several. Mm -hmm. um, a scene that he did in Live Free or Die Hard, the warlock scene, where everything is just explained. Right. Western movies and games do that constantly. They and have to. They feel compelled. To it's do almost that. like yeah. we cannot make peace with any kind of ambiguity. And I do think that hurt the film. Yeah, because the film is, is being held to that standard where things must be explained. Um, and, and we'll get there because I, I had quite a few notes on the scene where uh, pretty much the entire film comes to a standstill and the... <laughs> The, the demon that lives inside of Alessa, this oh little God, you know so crazy-haired girl, basically just lays everything out on the table. And um, it's nice that it's explained, sure, but it removes all of the ambiguity about what might have been going on. And all of the urgency. Um, Suddenly yeah, just because nothing... now it's like, hmm, okay. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, you know, now that I know that, just finish the movie up now. Right, and and, you know, the games don't care about that. Right. Uh, aside from the fact that games are designed as an interactive experience to provide, I mean, very famously, most Silent Hill games have multiple endings. Uh, mm -hmm. Two had five endings. Uh, six, I guess six if you include the dog ending. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so the, the storytelling has to account for all of those potential endpoints, all of those potential conclusions. And so ambiguity by its very nature is going to be more beneficial to telling a story like that. And movies, they can't 
or they they won't do that kind of thing. I mean, there are lots of good movies out there that have ambiguity. I mean, the ending of Inception, which drives people insane anytime I talk to somebody about Inception, which is a movie I like a lot. Well, and that's that's where those Western um, audiences just kill me. It's like it's been years. Can you just let it go? <laughs> yeah, just accept that he doesn't want you to know. Like that is the point, you know, because you as the audience member has to make you have to make a decision for yourself about what it is. And and I think that you know the games do a very good job of that. So Silent Hill 2 comes out. It's it's huge. I mean, don't, you know, don't let me t- don't think for an instant that Silent Hill is not a massive video game franchise. That game sold bajillions of copies and um, did very well. It was one of the first games to to get DLC. I mean, because in essence, when the Xbox version came out, they added the Born from a Wish scenario, which was very short, but in essence it was DLC that they then worked into the greatest hits editions of the PS2 versions so that you could play them so i mean it was it was an incredibly popular game uh three came out and three shifted back to the mainline story right it continued the story of harry and his adopted daughter and the cult right and uh you know three is a lot of people's favorite game in the series and i can completely understand why it's it provides some satisfying conclusions it does wrap up some of the ambiguity of the first game not everything but a good chunk of it we get a, a clearer prota- or antagonist, right? We get a, a, a villain to hate, which Silent Hill isn't always about that. But uh, 3 does provide it. And I think ultimately it's it's probably the most mechanically sound of the first four Silent Hill games. Like it's the most it has the best adept. gameplay experience. Like yeah. It's, it's my favorite to play, but it's not my favorite to experience. That's still 2. Yeah, yeah, I think 2 is the best overall sort of Silent Hill experience. And if you've never played a Silent Hill game and you want to, 2 is the one to track down, for sure. Because you don't have to have played any of the other ones. It's a, a complete experience all on its own, which is awesome. Um, but 3, you, you really need to have played 1 to sort of know what's going on in 3. And then 4 is just this oddity. Um, this thing it, of beauty. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one of the anthology series. We go back to a character that doesn't have any direct ties to the franchise as we've known it up until this point, who gets kind of sucked into the world of Silent Hill, quite literally uh, sucked into the world of Silent Hill. Through um, a butthole in the wall. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's It was originally a game that was designed to take place all inside of a single apartment, right? So it was kind of playing on... Because there was a, a, a time in, in Japanese horror where, you know, they would do these films in super tight spaces, right? And you would, you know, everything takes place in this one room inside of a house, you know, just as a restriction and tell this you know, small horror story. So they were kind of playing on that. You're trapped in your apartment, and the only way you get out is portals appear in various rooms in your apartment. You go through them, and they take you to a location in Silent Hill. So it allowed them to connect all of these disparate areas of Silent Hill. So you got to go to some places that you've never been able to go to before because in the mainline game, you're pretty much stuck in the city because it's a resort. And so like there's nothing outside of the resort, really. So you bounce around all over the place. And it's really about a side character introduced in Silent Hill to a, a, a serial killer. And so you're basically hunting this guy down. It was kind of the ultimate fan service game. Where it was like, it if you really way. love the games, you're going to love this game. But it wasn't really a good experience for anyone else. No, it's very hard. Uh, it, is, it is a tough game. There are a lot of unkillable enemies, which I'm going to go ahead and say right now is my, my least favorite trope in video games. I hate enemies that cannot be killed. 
I understand it. It's a way to increase tension. You know, I've played Resident Evil 3. Oh, like, oh it I get increases it. tension. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I understand, but it's just annoying. Um, the same one in Dead Space. You know, there was another character that you couldn't kill. You could only kind of, like, stop him for a little bit. Ugh, I hated those sequences. And so, whatever. Um, but there's a lot of unkillable enemies. Uh, a lot of the levels are very dense, difficult to navigate. You know, they don't make a lot of sense in terms of like how something would be laid out so that can be frustrating but it's an interesting story uh it resolves in really weird ways like the endings are crazy yeah they don't really make a lot but um but that's really the end of like the first core series of the silent hill games uh the film comes out in 2006 um silent hill 4 came out in 04 uh, the movie comes out in 06, and then after that, pretty much all of Silent Hill development, as I said, goes quote-unquote Western, right? Yeah. Uh, it's Eastern European studios, it's some Canadian and American studios working together. Or it's like Team Silent together. working with developers. Like, they did some handoff stuff, like they helped out and then let other then developers do the bulk finished. of the work. The only real through line is uh, a name that is, is incredibly important to this film, and that is Akira Achille Yamaoka. Yamaoka. So Yamaoka started off with the Silent Hill series basically as the music director, um, eventually upgraded to producer, which he maintained that credit through pretty much all of the Silent Hill games. But he's most famous for the music, right? All of the music, especially the music of Silent Hill 2, which Silent Hill 2 has an incredible soundtrack, absolutely stellar. Um, and he was the the primary writer and, and sound engineer that integrated the music into the games and he was responsible for the unique visual style of silent hill 4 yeah very much so So he was the creative director right that was really the game that he kind of moved forward into the the development side of thing or the full development side of things and so yamaoka is is an incredibly important figure to the silent hill series and and he stayed on in producer roles you know in some of the later silent hills which I guess really we get Origins, which was originally a PSP game that then got transferred to PS2 and a few other uh, platforms. Then we get Silent Hill Homecoming, which was the really first big Silent Hill release. um, And so very bad. Yeah, it's rough. You can tell it's really trying to play on the Silent Hill 2 sort of storytelling procedures, but it it just doesn't land. Um, They even introduce... The you know some of the elements from this film, the idea of the cult, yeah. the people in the mining gear, you know, they're they're really trying to tie the visual storytelling that's going on in this movie in back into the video games, and it, it doesn't really work, at least not super well. And then uh, the last official Silent Hill game was uh, Silent Hill Downpour, another uh, Western developed Silent Hill game, a little bit better from a story standpoint. It also tried to introduce some open world elements into Silent Hill, which Silent Hill has always been open world, right? You can kind of run around the city, but it's kind of corridored off, you know, with technical limitations of the time. You couldn't run everywhere, but there were large sections of the city that you could explore and you were encouraged to explore. This one really opened it up so that you could just kind of run around. It was uh, like a no loading zone Silent Hill at last. You, know, you can just go from Pretty street much. to street. I really liked Downpour. That was, I was yeah, a big I fan of okay. that. I had huge problems with the Homecoming story. I just, I just did not like that game. Um, mostly because I had a better idea in the middle of it, and I thought, "Wow, if they do this, this will—that's genius." 
and then and they, they didn't, didn't do, do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> no, they kind of take the most obvious approach to uh, the progression of that game. There's there's not a lot of surprises to be had. You can get me drunk Homecoming. sometime, and I'll explain to you my idea. It was so good. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, the one thing I will say about Homecoming is that it was the first one to sort of rethink movement and combat in the Silent Hill games. Tried to make them a little bit more accessible as well. Really, it, the main thing that it did was add a better lock-on and a little bit more side-strafing, but it still was fairly playable. Uh, if you got good with a couple of the weapons, like the enemies were basically no problem. Like You could just walk through the game without any difficulties, which you know decreased the tension a bit. Anyway. But I guess from Homecoming, I get well, from Origins on is where the the film and the games start to just live and exist in the same universe. Mm-hmm. So I would say the film, the film seems to use all of the music from Silent Hill Two and none of the story from Silent Hill Two. <laughs> no, a little bit of the 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 tension, some of the enemy types from Silent Hill Two, but not anything else right everything else is sort of pulling heavily from one and even that is is being really heavily reinterpreted um as far as what's going on in the town and what it looks like so um so i mean silent hill i mean you know we can't really encapsulate 20 years of of a video game franchise in a few minutes but needless to say it is one of the most foundational and important horror franchises in video gaming for sure Right, we we mentioned the other major pillar, which is Resident Evil, which is a very different kind of game series. Right, they're meant mm. to be more action heavy. They're more like a bombastic action horror film where you've you're, got rocket you're launchers. You're never meant to yeah. feel weak and alone in a Resident Evil game, whereas Silent mm-hmm. Hill goes out of its way to make you feel weak and alone. <laughs> right, even to the point that uh, some of the developers of Silent Hill Two, they were questioned at the time, like, why is James so hard to control? Why can't he shoot better? Why can't you? do this, do that, and, and several of them commented in interviews, well, you're not supposed to be. Like, he's not a soldier. Yeah. He doesn't know how to use a gun. Why do you think that he would be able to pick it up and, and shoot something with perfect accuracy? And and so, you know, they even sort of factored that into their game design. Like, you're supposed to feel like this thing's rushing at me, I need to shoot it, but I can't, I keep missing, or, you know, this bullet went away, or, you know, whatever. So it, it's something that a Resident Evil game would never do. Right, it would never make you feel weak on purpose, uh, or if it did, it would only be for a little bit of time, so that you would feel that way and then feel that power fantasy again. So Resident Evil and Silent Hill for a long time were seen as competing. I don't know why. I guess just because that's what video game people do. Scary things make... happen. Monsters yeah, come through windows. They must be games. the same. But you know, ultimately, uh, Silent Hill appeals to a, a different subset of people. Right, I think both groups can enjoy those types of games. I like the Resident Evil games too, but Silent Hill is just a different mixture of those elements in a way that I think for me has always been a bit superior. I've always liked them. So I guess let's, let's bring it back to the film, right? So Silent Hill is this important franchise. It's, it's doing gangbuster business. They want to get on the video game train because this is post Resident Evil, mm-hmm. right? This is, is post the Resident Evil series coming out and doing well. And, and so, I mean, Konami must have felt that pressure. Well, Resident Evil's a, you know, the horror franchise from our competitor. You know, why don't we try and make something with our horror franchise? Maybe we can do something. And so you can feel a bit of that being the justification, like, hey, you know. But the thing that Silent Hill had going for it that Resident Evil didn't is that Silent Hill was also able to touch on the J-horror market, which was exploding in 2006. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, we were getting new Japanese, you know, either a horror remake or just straight imported Japanese horror films constantly during this time period. And Silent Hill is very much in that vein. You know, it has the freaky little long, dark-haired girl, the white <laughs> face. You know, we, we've got all of those elements just right here for the taking. So I think there was a bit of, hey, we can we can get into this, right? And, and obviously the ring had kicked all that off. We've talked about that briefly. But um, it was in that environment that Silent Hill was, was sort of greenlit. And I think it's trying to appease all those masters. But it is also trying to do some very interesting and unique things in terms of horror. So some common problems with the film, to bring it back to that. Uh, again, with a sort of common theme we've had in these these ones, one of the main things it's maligned for is that it's it's boring. It doesn't feel like it moves. And it is long. I don't know if the film is boring, but it is long, right? Yeah. And you feel that length. And I know a lot of people say that the you know a good movie should involve you, and, and even if it's two and a half hours long, you shouldn't feel like it's two and a half hours long. But this movie feels its length, I will say that. Uh, a lot of bad overacting, specifically on the part of the child actors. I which, want to like eh. Jodel Furland. I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a cute little girl. Gosh yeah. dang, is she just adorable as heck in this movie. Um, but she didn't really... I'm not really sure acting was her thing <laughs> like a lot of those scenes were just really bad <laughs> I, she's very young in this um she's had a fairly successful uh, oh, she was in them twilight career films. she she played brie tanner in the twilight films a uh, small role obviously but you know big franchise she's had several uh she was on stargate a couple times she's she's definitely in that sort of canadian you know vancouver actor thing she was on a show that i really enjoyed called dark matter only ran for a couple seasons, but she oh, was in that. She was very good. Uh, and then she had a, a pretty long turn as a recurring character on Supernatural. So she's been around. Uh, I remember at this point, she, the thing that she had, was most Ow. known for was Tideland, uh, which was uh, a Terry Gilliam movie that came out a couple years before this. It was very much about trauma. Very, much, It was mm-hmm. uh, like a, a mother-daughter relationship and, and just was fraught with tension. And she had gotten a lot of attention for that because her performance was really good. So she's I know she's capable. Oh, for sure. And and I know she's very capable, but I don't know if this movie really gives her a lot to do. She has a large part at the beginning for the first fifteen minutes, and then she basically disappears as the 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 Sharon character for the the entire movie. Like she is gone. Um, and instead, she's playing this, you know demon i don't know what you want to call it i have many names you know whatever dark um, yeah the the darkness inside whatever so she's playing her and and doesn't have a ton to do with that but it, it still just doesn't always work uh so let's uh, so some some bad acting some overacting uh and there's some other elements uh deborah Kara unger plays dahlia gillespie Alyssa's mother and unfortunately, most of the lines that she's given are, I don't know if it was direction or if it was scripted this way, but she gives under her breath. Yeah. Right. And they're supposed to be these like, these like obscure, you know, 
prophetic statements like you know the darkness and the shadow will always rise but will the sun ever shine again? You know, like, like, like that kind of thing <laughs> yeah and it's like okay like it's a good day for pontooning right <laughs> what the fuck does that mean yeah, yeah it's like what is this you know uh, turn left turn right then turn left again <laughs> and you'll find the truth and 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 so i i look at it and i go like well she's doing the best she can with it and some of the lines are delivered like really well but uh, it just, it doesn't really land. Um, and then of course we have Rada Mitchell who plays our main character, Rose De Silva, who is our, our Harry, uh, stand in for the first game that, uh, as far as I understand, Gon said that they changed in the game. You play a, a father looking for his daughter. And in the film, they decided to change it to a mother looking for the daughter because they thought it would be, it would make more sense that a mother would endure the things that the character ends up enduring than a father, which I don't know. Unfortunately, that is another common Western misconception. You notice that mother-daughter stories tend to crop up and father-son stories, but very rarely father-daughter and very rarely mother-son, or they're always perverted somehow. Um, And that bugs me about Western media in general. It's like, why can't we have a story where, you know, father and daughter have a, an experience that's not horrible. Um, right, right. So that, to me, that just feels like appeasing Western audiences. Yeah, it feels like a screenwriting choice, a choice they made early on because they felt like audiences would buy it better. Maybe. Uh, even though... An Avery I, I don't think it would have mattered. Probably. <laughs> um, and then some... I mean, again, we're talking early 2000s here. This is 06. Uh, there's, you know, some poor effects in CGI. But I would say, I'm, I'll go ahead and say right off the bat, the production design of this film is absolutely stellar. Mm-hmm. Aside from capturing the, the look and feel of the games, but also being able to feel like a relatively real location, it's dressed very well. The production design uh, and design of the characters, uh, I guess it was uh, Patrick uh, Tatopoulos did most of the creature effects in this movie, and he's, he nails it. I mean, aside from them looking like their video game counterparts brought to life, he's really getting that. So the production design is fantastic. And, and you know, weird CG effects and stuff notwithstanding, it, it mostly works. But but a lot of people maligned it at the time. And then, um, much like with Alien vs. Predator, one of our previous topics of discussion, uh, that it feels too much like a video game. And I've kind of got to give him this one just a little yeah. bit. Uh, because there are several scenes in this when a character like finds an item and goes, ah, oh, I must go here, and then they, they go there. And that is very video gamey. But I kind of think it's on purpose myself. But, but I don't know. Um, what we do you also, think about that? Well, it doesn't bother me, because as a horror movie, a lot of horror films sort of lean on those perfunctory... Oh, I found a key card. I must go to the door where the key card works. Like they, a lot sure. of them sort of have that as a crutch. So I don't know if it's necessarily that it feels like a video game or it feels like a bad horror movie. Um, but it does, it does kind of stumble a little bit in that respect. Right. So I, I like I said, most of these problems, I, I think I'm pretty willing to say, yeah, they're problems in the movie. But I think that there's still enough here to overcome it. As we'll discuss, so let's let's actually discuss and, and summarize the movie itself. All right. So again, this is a loose adaptation of Silent Hill One, which we've already kind of discussed, 
but they do make some very, very significant diversions from that. But the setup is basically the same. Uh, the opening of the film is strong, right? We, we actually open with a very famous guitar lick, or I guess a mandolin lick, from Silent Hill uh, to sort of kick things off over the, the Davis and Company film production logo. And then we're pretty much right off to the races. Uh, we hear uh, screaming voices, people screaming the name Sharon, and then we, we you know, quick open onto Rada Mitchell in her night clothes, you know, running through the forest, chasing down, uh, presumably, Sharon, their daughter. Uh, so she's, like, dodging cars. She goes under a tunnel, uh, which Cheryl is written on the ceiling of the tunnel. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've noticed that before, yeah. you know, um, you know, it's a little reference there. Cause they do change the, the name of the little girl in the video game. Her name was Cheryl. And this one, it is Sharon. Uh, again, they also probably changed from the Masons to the De Silva's for to the De Silva's. Reason. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the, the mother and daughter or the mother and father are looking for her and they find her standing on the edge of a cliff. And uh, there's a really cool, like, lit cross in the background, which is the first of many, many Christian religious references in this movie. Um, they're everywhere. But there's this lit cross in the background, and she is, is getting ready to jump off. We get a little glimpse of sort of this burned-out industrial, you know, metalwork that is so common in the Silent Hill universe. Because I guess what we really have to establish is that Silent Hill, while you're playing the game, if you've never played one before, a siren, a a European air raid siren uh, in that style will sound. And in the game, the game would go dark, and then when the game came back, everything had changed, right? So you were in this, you know, foggy town. Like different dimensions. Right, it's like a different dimension. You're shifting realities. Uh, Again, it's sort of a reference to Jacob's Ladder or kind of that concept um, but so you, you, that's where a lot of horror in the game is created is your character will be moving along through this relatively normal space and then everything will change and everything is horrific, right? There'll be dead bodies everywhere. The walls turn to rust. There's chain link fence under your feet, you know, all these crazy sort of visual moments that are meant to sort of inspire terror. And so she sees sort of this or we were presume she does, and the mother catches her at the last moment, and she begins screaming in a very bad acting way. Uh, Silent Hill, I must go to Silent Hill, right? And so they, the mother, we then are presumed to understand, makes a, a resolution to take her daughter to Silent Hill, even though they've been advised not to. Now or we the have dad to talk really about to. the dad, played by right. the magnificent scene being... That's right. Uh, Sean Bean slumming it a little bit after his uh, star-making turn in Lord of the Rings. He carried this movie. I love this scene. He does. He's actually really good. Him and uh, the actor that plays uh, Detective Gucci as well. Um, I think he's he's so good. Um, And so um, the mother resolves to take the daughter without the father's permission. So he comes home from work one day. They're gone. He can't find them. She's not answering her phone. And they have taken off for Silent Hill. He goes on the computer in one of the earliest times that I remember seeing Google as a search engine used in a film. Like, yeah, they didn't come up with something fake like yeah, they didn't spider do like search. you know Bluegle or whatever. You know, it was just Google, and and she had searched for Silent Hill, and that's where we get the reference to Centralia because it's like Ghost Towns of America is the name of the website or whatever. 
And so Silent Hill is on there and it talks about this coal fire that's still burning under the town in the mines and it's unlivable as a result and, you know, everybody needs to, to stay away. And so De Silva, uh, was, you know, he sort of leaves to chase after them, but they're way ahead of him. And so we get a nice, a really nice little scene. And this is what I think, you know, Gons is really good at. You know, Tobias criticized the film because it has this like action exposition rhythm pattern, but really it's more, I think, Gon's understanding we need to have quiet moments with the tense moments. You can't just go completely balls to the wall, 100% all the time. You've got to give people these moments of respite. And so we really start off with this lovely moment of them under a tree, and uh, the daughter is drawing, they end up falling asleep together. And, uh, you know, it's just this quiet moment. But then as we pan away and they get back in the car to drive off, there's this, this you know, Bible verse on a billboard right next to where they were talking about like how... Fire and brimstone we, stuff. Yeah, we're going to judge the angels at the end of the world kind of thing. So already sort of seeding the idea of, of what they're going to find in Silent Hill. Then we just get game references constantly. Uh, they go to the Brahms gas station, which famously in the Silent Hill series, Brahms is the next town over. Like they never establish where it is or what its geographical relationship is, Just but Brahms is somewhere close by, you know. And they stop at the gas station. Uh, they have an encounter with a police officer, right? So in the original Silent Hill, um, there you is a motorcycle a police, officer. police officer. What was that? You meet a police officer. Same police officer, different situation. That's right. Yeah, it's the same character. But uh, the motorcycle police officer ends up passing Harry on this road. And then as he passes, he sees you know, her wrecked motorcycle, but no, no body or anything, just the motorcycle. And so she is in Silent Hill. She's a character in the game. You meet her several times. She ends up helping you in sort of the final conflict. And so they've transposed that character into this film as well. And their, their opening interactions are, are pretty similar to what we'd see in the game. Uh, the cops seem suspicious that maybe something's going on with the, the daughter. They, they do the whole thing where the kid's been drawing pictures while they've been driving, and then the pictures all get, like, turned evil, right? Some force, you know, makes covers them all in black, and there's blood everywhere, you know, that kind of thing, when they were sunny and happy before, uh, to imply that there's something going on. And uh, then they get pulled over, and that's when she sees the sign for the turnoff to Silent Hill, and she goes full blower through it, blows through a fence, and uh, travels closer to the town. The cop attempts to stop her again, and then that's when the girl walks in front of the car, and she crashes. Oh, which the crash is great, by the way. Um, I love a well-executed car crash sequence. I think... Um, they're, they're hard to pull off well. You know, now with modern technology, you know, they just flip the camera around. They do all these crazy slow-mo effects and whatever. This one's very, it's very quick, right? A lot of the physical violence in this movie is very, very sudden. You know, a character gets hit and they go down, right? There is no, like, you know, action movie stuff, which is something I've always liked about Gons' action work. You know, if somebody gets kicked in the face, they are down. It's not a, oh, let's have a 14-minute fight sequence, you know, that kind of thing, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and they wind up in Silent Hill, right? So she hits her head, wakes up, and, and it plays out exactly like the first game. The daughter is gone. Uh, the mother sort of walks into the foggy town to try and find her and sees a, a shadow moving through the fog and follows it. And then we get, in my opinion, and I, I don't know how you feel about it, I imagine you feel the same way, one of the most perfect moment-for-moment moment recreations from a video game that we've ever seen in a film. 
right? It's intentional, it's purposeful, the camera movements are designed in basically the exact same way, but it's still its own thing, it's still, it's re very respectful, but basically, in the original game, the, the moment that just seeded it for me was, um, you, you, right as you, you sort of see the girl, you run down an alleyway, you go down into this dark tunnel down a set of stairs, and the camera, which at this point, you know, we're dealing primarily with fixed cameras, right? This is the era of Resident Evil games where you walk into a room, you've got a static camera, you kind of move around, and then you go to the next room, and you do it again. And so you, Silent Hill felt very much like that at the beginning, but then you go down this little tunnel, and the camera just pulls up into this almost like bird's eye view, and then follows you through this little narrow corridor, and finally sort of tilts and angles its way around, and it's completely disorienting, absolutely insane. And the whole uh, it time it's getting crazy. dark, it's getting right. creepy, it's the music is getting more intense. It was a very that's a memorable moment in the game. And it's it's specifically memorable because that's your introduction to like the world of Silent Hill. Like you're not mm -hmm. in your Jeep anymore, you're you're somewhere else. Yeah. Um and it come like the part for me that's especially scary is you travel down this dark, you know hallway and this little alleyway and it's lit just by a zippo it eventually becomes so dark you can't see anything in front of you and right. then you just start finding gore and horror dead bodies, everywhere dead bodies and chain link fences <laughs> dead bodies you know, on chain link fences flipped just over things, wheelchairs yeah. things i'd never i'd never seen in a game before they were terrifying and and the movie does recreate that albeit changed slightly Slightly, right. It does put its own spin on it, but it is so evocative of that moment while doing its own thing that it's it's really striking. And I think it's just evidence of, you know, Gans is an extremely visual director. He, you know, his his visuals are very readable. It's very understandable, but he understands what a camera move can do. And I think that he really sort of adapted that moment and those series of scenes so effectively. Uh, it's just a great sequence. You get the same sense of disorientation, the same sort of creeping terror as everything gets dark. Of course, the siren sounds off for the first time, and um, you know everything changes, and it's it's really effective. And we get really a lot of the same moments. You know, she finds a body attached to a chain link fence. Eventually, we realize that it's one of the cultists, um, which in the original game it was just a just body. It didn't matter. Yeah, it was. But just it's gross. you know, <laughs> yeah, it was just meant to be gross. It was make you feel uncomfortable. But I think it's just such a great moment, and it's reproduced so well uh, on visuals that as a, as a fan of the games, it was satisfying on that level alone, aside from the fact that it, it's a truly horrific set of moments. Like, it's very scary and executed super, super well. But it, it is a, you know, it's, it's just a really good sequence. Um, but then... As somebody, if you didn't know Silent Hill, how do you think that scene plays? What do you think? I think it's great, except that after that, nothing interesting happens for a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it's, I mean, it's such a big moment, and then it just kind of goes... Wah, wah. <laughs> That's right. done now. <laughs> um, as, as she's moving through it, she's kind of in like a back sort of like the connective area between a whole bunch of apartment buildings is what it's sort of set up to be. 
And so like you would have little fences in between those areas that kind of subdivided the area off. And she's supposed to be in one of those areas, but it has been, you know, converted. And she runs through it and she is attacked by, you know, I guess what we could call ash babies. I don't even know <laughs> what you would want to call them, but they're these tiny sort of toddler sized creatures that appear to be on fire from the inside and, and are just making this horrific cry, which was fairly similar to the one in the first one, although it was more of a grunt in the, the game, I guess. But so she gets attacked by dozens of them. The camera sort of sweeps back at one point. We see there's hundreds of these things running around, which I don't know if was necessary, but still. And she runs into another sort of famous Silent Hill location, the bowling alley, where she um, falls and hits her head and passes out. And then we get a great match cut. Uh, the, you know, the lighting's changed. All the bad stuff is gone. And she just kind of pops awake. And, um, and she's back in sort of like the gloomy, foggy Silent Hill. And Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire is playing on the jukebox, yeah. which is, you know, fun, I guess. Good, good little ironic soundtrack touch there. Yeah, and not, there aren't a ton. That's really the only one in the movie. Everything else is the, the music from the games, but that was kind of a nice, nice little moment there. It was uh, a nice bounce back from that level of horror and that level of, like, heightened tension for then for her to wake up and there'd be a humorous song. It's like, oh, thank God, that's over. Right. Yeah, it's a nice tension disperser. Um, and, and it does allow, because it is very scary. Like, she's being mobbed by these things. And she falls, she hits her head, and and then we kind of snap back awake. Uh, which, again, is, is sort of subtle reference to the games. Uh, the original Silent Hill and Silent Hill 2, it is not uncommon for the character to be rendered unconscious. And <laughs> to wake just up lose consciousness else, you know? and find you know. that they're in a different dimension. Happens all the time. You know, it, it happens pretty frequently. So, again, this movie struggles with getting characters to the locations they need to be in, right? Like, why are they going to that place, and what is their motivation to do that? And um, so she wakes up, she continues to explore, and she uh, sort of travels outside of town. And that's where she finally meets up with Sybil, who has also been in an accident... Um, you know, both of these characters have been in severe car accidents and, and have hurt themselves, right? They both are bleeding from the head. And, and it's, this is where we really get the idea seated that maybe these characters aren't alive anymore, not in the way that we know or the way that we understand. And, and that begins to get reinforced because here is really where Sean Bean's character begins his sort of parallel journey to Rose. So he arrives at the site where Rose drove through the gates to get to the, the access road to Silent Hill. There are cops there. It's raining, which I, I think is a choice made specifically to show that Chris and Rose are nowhere near each other. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it is raining cats and dogs. Like it is he Sean Bean gets out of the car with his nice like long overcoat. Oh, it's a Burberry um, trench coat. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, which is that supposed to look like the detective from Silent Hill 3? Do you think that's what they were trying to do? I don't know. He's kind of wearing something like that. Um, but anyway, so he gets out and he is immediately soaked. Like it is hilarious how fast that man gets drenched with water. Um, and so he, he meets a, a cop, uh, Gucci who tells him, hey, you know, somebody blew through here last night. One of my deputies is missing as well. We're, we're looking for them. Let's drive up to Silent Hill, see what we can see. 
And so they get up there and the Silent Hill that he is in, while it's definitely gloomy and there's sort of like patches of coal dust floating in the air, it is nothing like the Silent Hill that Rose is in. And it so I think we're, we're meant to interpret very quickly that something very strange and interdimensional is going they on. They even went out of their way. Something that I, I really like is that Silent Hill, the, the games have always kind of done that with weather and environment to let you know you're in a different dimension of Silent Hill. But the way the film did it was the version of Silent Hill where Rose and Sybil, the cop, are stuck is almost aged differently. Like everything yeah. looks more ancient, things look more destroyed. And then the Silent Hill that that Scene Bean, I refuse to call him Sean Bean, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> right. That Scene Bean and Kim Coates are kind of moving through is nowhere near as torn up. Like no, it's actually. It just looks a, abandoned. It just yeah, looks abandoned. Live there. Mm-hmm. I really like it. Yeah, it's it's a super effective thing, but again, it's it's the removal of that ambiguity, right? Like we know as an audience pretty much right away, oh, they're in a different dimension, right? And they may not say that, you know, nobody's going like, I wonder if this is a parallel dimension, you know, like nobody does that, Thank fortunately. God. But but we know, right? And we even get a, a really great scene a little bit later where you know Rose is sort of running down a long hallway, and. Chris is in the same location and she kind of broke, you know, in the other dimension runs by him and he gets like a whiff of her perfume. He feels her presence. And so they really do, you know, sort of play up this idea that he knows she's close, but he can't touch her. He can't get to her. Right. And so it's, it's kind of a neat moment. I think it's executed pretty well, but so, uh, he's brought in and, and so it sort of sets him on cause the cop dismisses him. He basically says, Hey, you know, you need to get out of here. We'll, we'll take care of this, but you can't just hang around this town, right? Like you've just got to get home. It's not safe. Cause there's still a coal fire burning. He needs right. to wear a mask if he's going to be in silent Hill. Like it's actually in pretty bad shape. So they have a mm-hmm. good excuse for the character not to be there. Yeah, for sure. And it sort of sets him off. Cause we have this other question, right? It's like, well, what is this girl's connection to Silent Hill and in the game obviously as the main protagonist you know Harry Mason the guy you play as he's the one who has to uncover his daughter's connection to this town but Rose is so occupied with survival and staying alive and there are no expository characters in Silent Hill you know the version that she's in that has that information except for like the demon Alessa and so she's not going to you know the exposition from her doesn't come for a long time. So Chris is the one that kind of starts piecing together Alessa's relationship to Silent Hill and how Sharon might be involved, you know? And, and so it's, it's, it gives him enough to do, but it still sort of feels like its own movie running apart from everything else, right? There's no, there's not enough connective tissue there to sort of keep it rolling or not to justify why we had to have two characters to do this job. But I'd say it, He's good enough in the movie. I don't really care, but um, I guess my problem with his with that sequence of the film is that it felt very traditional. It felt like those familiar expository scenes of so and so in a library digging up old files. Mm. Like I get yep. really tired of that scene in horror movies. It's I almost expect it yeah. now. I expect some a library scene of some kind or like a file room or, or something stupid like that. 
And I was kind of disappointed that that's how that story was delivered. Because Silent Hill, the first game, was very creative in how you discover parts of that story. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, a lot of it was ambiguous. And you had to decide for yourself, you know, some of those story elements and what direction to take them. Um, So, I mean, I guess it was as good as it could be. I can't think of a better way other than just copying what was in the game. <laughs> right, and and I think what it really sets up is that, because one of the things I realized I was when I was watching this time, I was paying really close attention. So, Rhonda Mitchell's character, Rose Da Silva, she meets up with Sybil. Sybil is antagonistic towards her at first, because you know this whole thing started when Rose jumped the traffic stop that she had made. So she handcuffs her, which is cool, comes important. That's when they meet the patient demon, and then during that scuffle, Rose just runs off because she had found another drawing from her daughter in the car that indicated uh, that she should go to the school. And so uh, Rose, you know, finds that information. And even though she's handcuffed, she just you know, hauls it back into Silent Hill and, and starts looking for the school. Um, she deals with the handcuffs. She at least gets the handcuffs. She doesn't. I'm not exactly sure that the... It, it, it works, but she sort of, you know, works them from behind her back to up in front of her. But she's still handcuffed for the next, like, almost 25 minutes. Yeah. That character is handcuffed, which is, is an interesting choice, number one. And to, scary. Yeah, I, I think it does increase the tension a bit because she's she's very much un- incapable of defending herself. She doesn't have a weapon uh, or anything like that. Sybil's really the only person in the game or in the game. Uh, in the movie uh, that has a gun. Everybody else is just using blunt weapons, if anything. Eventually she gets a knife, but, you know, that's way later in the movie. But so she's she's handcuffed, she's unarmed. She makes it to the school uh, by following maps, which I actually kind of enjoyed. We get that a couple of times in this. But one of the, the sort of famous elements of the Silent Hill games is it had a really robust map system that would circle mm-hmm. items and show you where to go. It was very cool, and, and it gave the town a sense of place, right? Like, this was a real place that you could navigate, right? Oh, I need to take a left on this street, and then I need to go right on this street, and that's where I'm going to find this thing. Modern and games took a lot from the map design of Silent Hill. Yeah, it's really clever. The thing I loved about it was that even though it was quite complex, it loaded quickly, so you could mm-hmm. check it very frequently without having to like you know wait uh to the point that modern games that have map systems they take forever to load like my goodness i was playing through the uh, far cry new dawn not too long ago and the map in that game takes like five minutes to load it's ridiculous makes no sense it's not that bad but still it, it was nothing like silent hill so um she navigates by map she goes to midwich elementary school which is again reference to a classic sci-fi book about uh, women being impregnated by aliens, which is hilarious. Um, but so she arrives at the school, she searches around, she finds a flashlight, which again, another you know, video game reference, you know, you're constantly looking around for flashlights. And she discovers a, a classroom where she has a little vision of uh, a young girl that looks a lot like Sharon being maligned by other little girls. Then we get our first introduction of the cult, right? So the cult of Silent Hill in this game, Jesus, in this movie, yeah. um, the cult of Silent Hill is is very much in the, the Christian mold. 
um, way more so than in the games. The games sort of had that architecture, but it was never really treading on that. It was way weirder than just being like a extreme Christian cult. But this one just feels like a Christian cult that loves to burn witches. I mean, that's what they do. That's their thing. Burning uh, some witches. Burning witches to maintain the purity of the people. Uh, again, it's, it's very simplified, very straightforward. But they show up, and they're in, like, a really visually arresting look as sort of classic miners, right? They've got the full goggles on. They have the canary in the coal mine. That warns them, I guess, when the, the evil is coming. I did not really understand that. I didn't... It's, it seems more like a visual idea that they decided to incorporate in completely rather than having it make sense. Like, Because, like, why do you need the canary if you have the sirens, you know? Right, the siren. Well, see, the siren is triggered after the canary because the canary tells... No, I don't know. It's, oh it doesn't make God. any sense. You know, it's just... It, it worked visually, but when you think about it too long, <laughs> it doesn't it make a ton of sense. stupid. Um, Anna kind of does the same thing later when they're in a, another location, like a bunch of crows fly up out of the ground and that's her, oh, oh the darkness is coming. We've got to go. So I'm like, so every time a bird flies around, that means the darkness is coming. Oh, is shit, I'm surrounded by darkness all the time. Yeah, man. I mean, if it's just <laughs> birds chirping. We got problems. And so it, it, they show up, they scare her and she runs into a bathroom. She locks the bathroom. She found some keys because of course it's a, a video game movie, so you gotta find keys to open door and unlock doors. And Whoa. she locks the door, uh, and the the darkness starts. But not before she finds possibly Colin. one of the most visually arresting set pieces in the and, movie. And I gotta right. take a second to talk about uh, Ro- Roberto Campanella, the yeah. choreographer who did all of the enemy choreography for right, the film, including, the including nurses and, playing yeah, Pyramid yeah. Head and playing this character, Colin. Mm-hmm. Um, Colin the janitor. He is an incredible mover. Like I, I don't even know how else to describe it. Just the way that he can move his body is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, because he came up, they, like he helped develop the character of Colin because it's not original to Silent Hill. The game universe. No, um, no. This is a this was created exclusively for the film. And he was specifically involved in like, especially coming up, I think, with the tongue thing that he did. Oh God, it's just messy. It but is. yes, she finds um, she finds this body in the in the bathroom stall with um, a note in its mouth. Uh, a key. A key. A key in a its key. mouth, and then written all around it is "I double dare you." <clears throat> Right. And so the implication is you have to remove the key from the mouth. I double dare you. When she does, it seems to sort of trigger the arrival of the darkness. Right. So the mining people, they run away. She's in the room and we see the we see the transition from the quote unquote real Silent Hill, the, the, the fog Silent Hill into its its nightmare version. And in the video games, you, you never really see this transition. It happens but it was really, the, the game would go dark so that they could do the palette swap to load the new textures, right? Sometimes they used like a blur effect to kind sure. of make it look like the camera was spinning a little bit. Um, but that's about it. Right, you know, so we'd never really seen this transition take place. Three is probably the closest. Three has a couple of shots that that sort of, you know, imply that the world is sort of shifting and melting and, and bleeding, if you want to call it that, you know, and that's what, you know, sort of the, the nightmare Silent Hill emerges out of. 
And so we get to see that transition and it's really almost like everything's on fire, right? And it's turning to ash, right? So they're taking that idea of the, the fire underneath the city and it's burning away the surface and revealing this thing underneath, which is a nice metaphor. Like it's a surprisingly effective metaphor for the, the darkness underneath the town. That's where you get a little bit of the, tw- the Twin Peaks stuff going on, that there's, there's this evil creeping just underneath the surface if we could only see it. Um, and it's, it's really effective, but we see that for the first time. And then in successive Silent Hill games, starting with Origins, this is the basic effect that is, is used, uh, at least in a couple of them. Homecoming, for sure. Origins, to a certain extent. Downpour kind of does its own thing because it has at least water images in it, so it kind of does its own thing. But um, It tried to kind of reorient that to being specific to the game or specific to the story being told. Um, yeah. Which, that, that works for me, too. Yeah, it's fine. Like, you know, again, it's just a transitionary piece, but it was a really effective one. Uh, and here, it's, it's quite good. Uh, like, the effect actually holds up pretty well. There's a couple of little shoddy, oh, that's, that's CG-looking stuff. But for the most part, it's, it's super effective. It's a great transition. And the main thing that happens is that Colin dude who is all folded in half and wrapped mm. up in barbed wire, he comes to life, and he begins to, to approach he is essentially hogtied with barbed, with barbed wire, wire, except mm-hmm. his arms are free, and it's more the like it's tied around his neck. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea how they were able to execute that and have it look as good as it does, and not be like horribly painful. Um, but he's kind of dragging himself along the floor, and mm, oh, that's, it's it's super effective. It's it's a terrifying se- uh, sequence. Um, you know, I've seen it multiple times now, so I'm not like viscerally, uh, you know, disgusted by it like I was the first couple of times. But I mean, it is, it is a truly shocking scene. It's something that if you don't have any experience with stuff like this, or even you know much of a horror experience, it's a shocking thing to see. Super well done. The prosthetics are great. It's shot well. It's lit perfectly, which I will say that you know, creature effects live and die by their lighting. Like mm-hmm. if you cannot light your practical creature effects, well, they will look awful 100% of the time. Right. And we have dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of this. This, I think it is carefully and purposefully lit to maximize the effectiveness of the practical um, work being done here, either in costume or makeup effects or what have you. It's, it's great pretty much universally across the board. I don't really have any issues. There's a couple of shots with pyramid head. that are probably a little bit too bright that should be toned down just a bit, but that's, that's more of a, my personal preference. And I don't, because I don't, they used, I think pyramid is pyramids more intimidating when you can't see everything in my opinion. True. But. but they did use a good enough costume for him that those sites, those shots can be brighter and it still looks really good. Yeah. It doesn't look bad. It never looks bad. But so now we're in nightmare school, right? And so she has to escape. She's running around. She's, they introduced these roaches, which the original game did have, you know, these, these little roaches that would follow you around. They didn't do much damage, but they were just more annoying. So if you were trying to run from a larger enemy, they could bite you and stop they you. They also and, set off your radio, uh, yeah, which was your, so just your enemy constantly. alert. And so they, they introduced those. There's a bunch of these roaches. They show the underside of one, and it's got like a little human skull face, which is kind of freaky. But uh, So they're running away from those. That's where we get um, 
it, it cuts to back briefly. Like Rose has us like a freak out moment where she just sits down and she's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I think it's a, that's actually a great scene. We don't get it enough in intense horror movies where I one of the characters breaks movies. down. And it's just like, I don't know what to do. Right. Um, like it's really good. The one forgivable thing in Prometheus was when, uh, what's his face has his little freak out and he's like, talking about you know it doesn't involve giant fucking bodies and like i don't want to be here <laughs> yeah. anymore that's the yeah. one believable moment because i i almost need that in a horror movie mm-hmm. otherwise i feel like has everyone gone insane like you people see what's happening right now right so i, mean, I an love adaptability to a human being but at a certain point you are your brain is going to go i don't know what to do here i have no frame of reference for how to deal with this and so we get that moment, and that was also when I realized that Rada Mitchell, from the moment that she leaves Sybil Bennett, really through the next sequence, she has basically zero lines. Like, she says nothing. She has a few, you know, like, ah, row, get out of here. But she's not really delivering any dialogue, just emotional reactions. And it's a, a really interesting choice for the basically the, the middle act of your movie to have your main protagonist have zero to say. Like nothing to communicate outside of just what is necessary to move the film forward. It, it's it's not a bad thing, but it is certainly strange. Um, but as she's laying there, we get a, a really good exposition dump from Detective Gucci, uh, mm-hmm. Kim Coates' character, where they're driving through the town in his truck. This is a little bit earlier, but it's it's sort of paralleled within this set of sequences, where he sort of says, you know, hey, you know, my dad you know, I'm from here, you know, my dad had that barbershop over there, you know, there was this, this fire, all this stuff happened, people were trying to get out, you know, it's, in terms of expository dialogue, where you're trying to help your audience understand a sequence of events that took place in the past, super well written, very smartly delivered, it's, it's not too much information, you know, he's not like, I remember Mr. Johnson, God, what a great guy, gave me, gave me candies every Sunday at the at the lemon soda counter. You know, like, we don't get any of that garbage. It's just, like, you can see there's there's a pain in this guy that he has affiliated and associated with this town and this place. He gives us just enough information, and then we kind of continue moving on. And that's where we get Chris is inside the school at the same time. And they run, and in her moment, as she's getting ready to just freak out, she runs past him and then collapses. And so, you know, we... We, we get this great set of sequences. The, the roaches are approaching her. Pyramid Head is there. She sees him. Again, has no cogent reaction to what she's observing. Like, it does not make sense. When, he's, and I get, you know, is he dragging, head, and he's dragging one of, the, one of the minor bodies, I think. Yeah. I, I got, yeah and he's his got, knife. like, one of them. Sure. And his big old knife. Um, yes, Pyramid Head knife. Is, is one of those characters that I don't think we're ever supposed to have any idea what to do with that character because every time mm-hmm. you see him um of course he's from silent hill 2 he actually yes. is one of the few things from silent hill 2 that made it in story-wise i think just mm-hmm. because fans were expecting to see him yeah um, it would have been weird to have a silent hill movie at this point in the series without seeing pyramid Ed. but it's a character that's changed a lot in interpretation and kind of people have different ideas on who or what it is but it's essentially just a giant scary dude with a huge pyramid shaped helmet that seems to obscure even its vision but it knows where you are and it carries a giant knife and i just can't think of anything scarier than that (laughs) right i guess we can go ahead and go ahead the film really 
did a nice service to making Pyramid Head as imposing as he feels in the games. Definitely. They exaggerated some of his elements, and th those exaggerations work their ways, you know, their way back into the games eventually. But I guess we can say in Silent Hill 2, Pyramid Head is, I guess you could say, is the closest to a primary antagonist that you have. Uh, again, most of Silent Hill 2 is dealing with James's internal psychological pain. So there's not really, I mean, there are boss enemies that you face because it's a video game. But there's really no bad guy, right? Because the, the bad guy is James. James is the bad guy. That's kind of the point. But they introduce in Silent Hill 2 the character of the executioner, right? The judge, right? Yes, that when DJ. this when this cult had declared you bad or, or you had been ruled as, as evil or outside their rules or whatever, then this, this pyramid head figure who is this imposing figure with like a, a butcher's apron on and instead of a head is just this giant pyramid shape sort of with one of the, the you know central lines of the pyramid facing forward into kind of a point that he would be, you know, he was your executioner, right? And so in, in the the uh, video game, you get there's a painting you find about halfway through, call it, was it Rainy Day Judgment? Or uh, something misty like day, that? The misty, misty Day, The Remains of Judgment. Yeah, um, and and it has like two pyramid heads, and that forecasts some stuff that happens at the end of the game. But There's also the the issue that the, the film doesn't address this at all, but and, and I guess it's probably good that it doesn't. It concentrates on the the more Christian-looking cult, which was mm -hmm. talked about in Silent Hill 1, but there's actually right. another layer to the occultism and the mysticism in Silent Hill that's right. even older than that cult. And that's supposedly what Pyramid Head is from. Right. But yeah, in he, this, he connects sort of back to this one that maybe has ties to the Native American groups of the region, which, again, I think is more of like a Twin Peaks kind of reference that they were playing with in Silent Hill 2. But it's this sort of much more ancient cult, ritualistic society, and Pyramid Head is involved in that. And then it's it's been adopted by or, or somehow incorporated into some of the other cult activity. In the Almost town. appropriated by. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which is also another fascinating way to think about yeah. it. Uh, the white people moved in and said, you know, we're a Christian cult. We believe in Christian cultism. And, and, they, and, and we're just really, going to take you, all your, all your if you track the Silent Hill 2 events that's exactly what happens they come yeah. in and they're like we like parts of your religion we'll take, we'll take that, that we like that pyramid head fellow yeah so we uh, you know so a lot of people objected to his presence in this game because at this point in the franchise pyramid head was tied very exclusively with James's internal it, basically it was supposed to represent James's need to be punished for what he had done to his mm -hmm. wife, right? The the way that he had, had killed her and ended her life. And so some people objected to that. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, it, again, it's such an iconic component. I wanted to see him Silent on the big Hill screen. Mythos. I mean, yeah, and I just think that's, selfishly, that's, I enjoyed that. Yeah, Gans probably did too, you know, just to, to see that in real life. And so she's chased by Pyramid Head. Um, she's laying on the floor, distraught, and Sybil reappears, right? Again, very video gamey. You know, we have no idea how she got there, how she found Rose. Doesn't matter. She appears, drags her to safety. And then we get a, a really harrowing scene, which I absolutely love. And that is they're in this, I guess, kind of an elevator. Not really, more of like a little side room. But they're trapped. The doors are barred. They can't get out. And then Pyramid Head and his great knife show up and just starts ramming the knife through the door and then that, swinging it around. 
That really room good is a specific room that is actually in the school level. Is it? Yes. I don't even remember that. It, it, okay. it's, you you go in. Um, it's that I, I really liked that scene um, because that was one of the scariest rooms to me. Is you you walk in and it's just empty except for this like black void at the back, and you can see a huge um, industrial fan, and there's a body hanging behind it. Mm, okay. Oh, and yeah, that's the room remember. that I okay, think I they're supposed to be in. I don't know why that matters to me, but it matters to me. <laughs> that's that's fine. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that room now, but I didn't make that connection. Um, so he he attacks them, sort of works his way in. Uh, Sybil uses the last bit of her ammunition to sort of shoot his arm, and then he retreats, and, and everything kind of goes back to you know foggy Silent Hill. Uh, I guess we should mention that Sybil is you know. Rose De Silva's played by Rada Mitchell, who at this point I only really knew from Pitch Black. That's the only thing I'd ever really seen her in. Um, I liked her in that. Like, she was really good in that movie, but, you know, I, I didn't, you know, she wasn't a face that I saw very frequently. But Sybil Bennett Lori. is played by Lori Holden, who now is known to most people by pl- for playing uh, Andrea in the first, what, six seasons of The Walking Dead? Maybe a little bit, a little bit more than that. Um, but this is way before that. She actually hooked up with Frank Darabont, did The Mist right after this movie. She was one of the main uh, characters <laughs> in The Mist. And and then sort of because of her relationship with Darabont there, he you know pulled her into The Walking Dead. And the rest is history, as they say. Um, <laughs> I love Lori. But so, yeah, she's, she's great in this. Like, she's really good. Aside from the costuming, which absolutely nails Sybil's outfit from the game, but makes it feel like a plausible cop outfit right like it it actually feels like a uniform instead of a you know well a good example would actually be the resident evil series right so in resident evil apocalypse the second one we talked about it before they they dress jill valentine in that movie in the like go-go boots mini skirt and torn blue shirt from the game like they recreate that outfit in that movie and it looks terrible like it is awful how bad it looks because it feels like a costume culled from a video game and then put into the real world, but not with any consideration for how it might actually be made or what source materials it may have come from. Nothing. This feels like a real cop uniform, even though it still has the leather pants, it still has the the knee high boots. It's completely plausible, but she is, she's great in this. She doesn't really get much to do. She's only in a couple more scenes after this, although one of them is a very, very big scene. Um, but uh, she's really good, right? She's just great. And so they, they leave that. And then once again, we're kind of like, okay, we finished at the school. Now we need to get somewhere else. We need to get to the next place. And so all of a sudden, Rose has this, we, the, the key that she pulled out of the janitor's mouth was from a hotel, right? It says the Grand Hotel on it. She's like, we got to go to this hotel. This is where we need to go. How she knows that, why she knows that, no idea. But again, it's a video game. So it's better than being going. at the school. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to stay here anymore. This is bad. <laughs> so they go back into the streets. Uh, I guess at that point, uh, they've discovered that uh, one of the cool things about Silent Hill that they did to gate your movement, right, that you, so you couldn't just go anywhere in the town, was that you would approach the, the, you know, the, a street ending, and then there would just be a giant hole there, right, mm-hmm. just a huge gap in the ground. And so we see that a couple of times in the movie, and it's, it's pretty neat. It's a good effect. They kind of peer over the edge, look down, and it's just this bottomless pit, and the, the street's basically just been sheared off. So we see that a couple of times. They find their way to the hotel, and um, that's where we meet uh, Anna, 
right? The new character. She is mm-hmm. having some type of confrontation with Dahlia Gillespie. Dahlia, it is, on Thursdays, we go to the left. Right? You know, <laughs> she's, you know, she's doing her thing. And uh, Anna is throwing stuff at her, I guess, like little chunks of, of uh, stuff from the ceiling. She's hurling things at her and telling her that she's evil. And, and, and shouting whatever. stupidly. <laughs> yeah, like the that's one of the things. I mean, a, a lot of the acting in this movie is not terrible, but it just feels tonally off from what other characters are doing, right? Like se- sequences and pieces were filmed without other actors present to react to, or those reactions were not didn't sync with the take they ended up using, right? There's just a lot of like, I'm screaming and yelling. This other person is whispering, right? There's just a lot of that stuff, uh, which could be a result of, you know, having to sort of chop the movie together and figure stuff out. There are a couple of really bad ADR lines as well, where a character is visibly not saying what their character is saying, (laughs) right? Like the mouth is not moving with the words that we're hearing, you know? So I think there was Mr. Falcon moments. Yeah, definitely some yippee Mr. Falconing going on here. But it feels like it's because they had a scene and then they decided to change the tag on that scene to lead to the next one, so we had to record another piece of dialogue. Was well, they wind up at the hotel. Um, they sort of break up that confrontation. Anna just hangs around for some reason. I don't I don't really remember why. It's, she She's there purely to get them to the next set piece, which I sort of... I feel like the hotel was a wasted set piece anyway. I kind of wish they would have just stumbled upon that as they were leaving the school and those events played out without Anna as a character at all. Um, That was one place where I felt like, you know, you didn't even really need her. No, no, she's a completely meaningless character. She exists to have something truly horrific happen to her in less than five minutes, right? Like that is... Her entire purpose, uh, because they couldn't have that happen to one of the main, at this point, sort of co-leads uh, with the film. And so uh, they meet her, they go up into the hotel, they find a room hidden behind a painting of a witch being burned. They go <laughs> Why is that has, in the hotel? <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know how many hotels really sort of populate their their hotels with witch burning. We call this the witch burning suite. This is the witch burner. And so they, you know, it's I guess it's supposed to be a bit of a, a puzzle Right. She like solves the puzzle. Oh, this is the room. You know, so she cuts the painting. She goes inside because uh, they they found another picture in room 111. Right. So they know that that's where they need to go. Yeah, whatever. And so she they go up in here and it's this massive room. Right. It's it, what does she say? It connects to the next building. Right. So like you go to it through the hotel, but it's not actually in the hotel. And it's this massive room. It's obviously been burned. There's stuff piled up everywhere. There's a huge hole in the center of the room. And there's all this paraphernalia from the cult, which Anna just clarifies, right? She's there to kind of say, oh, all of our, all of our cult stuff has that symbol on it. Like, oh, well, thanks. Okay. <laughs> cool. The elder of my elders. That's, that's the yeah. only thing that she says that I kind of, I liked the phrasing it's of not that. Bad. I just yeah. wish it didn't come out of her mouth. Right. Any other character could have said it and it would have been fine. The elder of my eldest ghost on the left on Thursday. Right. Like she could have, <laughs> even Dahlia could have, you know, delivered that line and it would have been fine. But In fact, it would have been cool if Dahlia was the one who led them through all of these things. And yeah, because then... it's it's revealed later that she knows all this stuff. Yeah. Right? Like she was there for everything. And Deborah Kara Unger is such a wonderful actress. She just, I, I wonder what happened to her in this, this role. Yeah, um... I guess it's worth mentioning that in the original game, Dahlia is is one of the major 
enemies, right? Like you never fight her or anything, I guess. Kind of at the end, maybe, but but she is is an antagonist. She is trying to stop you from what you are doing because you're interfering with the cult's desire to resurrect this god or whatever. But in this movie, she is incredibly sympathetic. Like we are meant to pity her because she has lost a daughter and she's been ostracized by the uh, the cults, you know, whatever. And, and she is obviously a character of pity. And I, I wonder if at some point, either in the, you know, some of the things they filmed or in the initial script that she was supposed to turn, right? Like she was supposed to go evil at a point, but she never does. And so as a result, it's like, well, why are you here? Like, what are you yeah. doing? Um, other than, you know, being fan service for people who know who Dahlia Gillespie is. But so they go in this room and we actually get a platforming sequence. It's adorable, right? Yeah. Like it's Rada Mitchell hopping across <laughs> beams to get Grabbing to another some location. Ropes. Grabbing swinging. some ropes, swinging <laughs> around. Um, you know, it's a, a lovely little, little moment there that's kind of silly. But she finally gets her first, you know... Because one of the things, and, and this makes more sense for getting her from one place to another, was she keeps seeing a shadowy sort of childlike figure running, you know, oh, up in this hallway or whatever. And in the school, she'd gotten a brief glimpse of her as well. But she finally gets close, and the girl turns around and finally, like, reveals herself. And it's this dark Alessa, or dark Sharon, if you want to call it that. And she kind of gives her another clue, I guess, if you want to call it that. And uh, then the scene kind of ends. She has a vision, and then she pops back out of it. And uh, we kind of keep going. And and so then Anna says, oh, the darkness is coming. We have to run. We've got to get to the church. That's where the only place where we're safe. So they run through the streets very quickly. They arrive at this big church. And then in another, you know, sort of, we're going to remove all this ambiguity. In the original game, the siren that triggers the change in Silent Hill, you, we have no idea what it is where it comes from it's obviously treading upon the fear of an air raid siren right being heard and of course if we really want to think about that air raid siren's role in the history of japanese culture and why it would hold that position for a a group of japanese game developers i think it's pretty obvious why that would have a sort of significant the the nightmare is beginning kind of thing uh, which is a, a wonderful quality of those original games, uh, we find out that it's actually a warning siren on the top of the town's church. And it's the call for everybody to come to the church to escape the darkness. Hey everybody, I'm going to cut in right there and stop this episode. We talked for a long time about Silent Hill and we have a lot more left to discuss. But we're going to break this episode in half, so if you want to hear the rest of our discussion of Silent Hill, pick it up with Silent Hill Part 2, which should be available right now. Thanks.